This is a recording being made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of Casting Shadows Before. Uh, it means to say that we're looking at outstanding scriptural characters and endeavouring to learn some God-appointed lessons from them. The subject before us this evening is the Apostle Paul and some of the men that gathered round him as recorded in the New Testament and the lessons we may learn from that. Uh, it is our custom in this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and if those who are listening to this recording care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us Philippians chapter 4. Those of you who were with us last Thursday will remember that we were looking at the, the Apostle Paul and his life and character as given in the New Testament under three headings. Not so much his spiritual equipment but those things which were under the control of God quite unconscious, quite unknown by the Apostle at the time. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. What a man to be able to speak to those groaning under the bondage of the law. He could say, I've been there. But he was also a citizen of no mean city, Tarsus, which was a university city and of great repute with regard to its philosophy. But in the square of that city stood a statue and it said, eat and drink or something to that effect. The end is nothing. You can see how that affected his mind. And then also we discover presently that he was a Roman citizen and he hadn't purchased that. He was born free. Now all these things were outside of his own volition. But God who chose him before his birth knew the thought of man he chose. And it's encouraging to us to know that not only spiritual equipment but all the other phases, the temperament that we possess, the leadings we have to this or to that, all known by him, and he can just give us, in answer to that prayer, which the Apostle himself put up, Lord, what would they have me to do? He just gave him the work, and he realised that all sufficiency of grace went with the disposing of that office. Well now, he tells us in 1 Timothy uh, that his, con his conversion, and the way in which he was called, was a pattern. He says in 2 Timothy, the same word translated form, hold a pattern of sound words. He says in Philippians 4, the chapter we read just now, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, that's pretty wide, isn't it? Not those things that you've heard at a distance, but all this, focusing upon him, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. What an extraordinary claim for anyone to make, and yet there it's embedded in Scripture. Well, what sort of man is this? Well, he's an extraordinary mixture. It's so good to realise when sometimes you sit down and think about yourself. You say, well, I'm apostolic in one thing. The Apostle Paul seemed to be all sorts of types rolled into one because of his temperament and his calling and his office. He said, for instance, I am made all things to all men. 
But if you thought he was Mr. Pliable, that you could twist round your fingers and bribe or bully or bamboozle into any disloyalty to the truth, you'd realise how insistent he was, insistent he was, that while he was all things to all men, that by all means he might save some, he said, am I now pleasing God? And of course, you know the answer he expected. Or if he said, when I'm feeding babes in the truth, I give them milk and not meat. But then he repudiated in the same, the epistles to the same churches that he hucksterized or watered down the word of God, as the word might mean, which comes in the close of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're not as those who hucksterize or water down, but we use great plainness of speech. So we get these characteristics. We find a, an extraordinary sensitiveness to handling money. The Apostle Paul was very, very scrupulous with regard to the way in which money entrusted to him should be watched over by others and so on. And yet at the same time he could quote, the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. He was a champion of liberty, if ever there was one. And yet he was glad to sign himself the bond slave of Jesus Christ. He said, shall I come to you with an apostolic rod? And yet writing, he says, I beseech you, instead of commanding you. He said, I'm less than the least of all saints. I am not worthy to be called an apostle. And then suddenly he says, I magnify mine office. And I'm not one whit behind the chiefest apostles. What are you going to do with a man like that? Well, you better learn something, because you see, you can't judge him by an ordinary foot rule. There's something vaster, something deeper, something greater. And I feel that in this very chapter we've been looking at, Philippians chapter 4, we can make a good start off on this investigation. Notice in verse 11, his extreme independence. Not that I speak in respect of want. Because you see, in verse 10, he had been reminding them how they had helped him financially, because he refers to it again in verse 15, now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, for even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. And in chapter 10, the moment he speaks about this, he comes in, verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want. Or after he's spoken to them in 15 and 16, he says, not because I desire a gift. Always so sensitive, lest having jogged your memory uh, that there's a long time come since you had any fellowship with us, you think I'm just asking for something. You see, isn't it fine to know the man had that character? It sometimes helps a few of us who feel a little bit so disposed many a time. Now this is in verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want. Our version says, For I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. First of all, the word learn. This is a verbal form of the word disciple. Mathiti. You can learn, you know, by reading a book. But you can learn by going through it. Discipline is the word. A disciple has been disciplined. He says, I've learned as a disciple. And what have you learned? Our version says, whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Whereas, Instead of the word 
there with being in the original, it's not there at all. This man didn't say, oh, I'm content with whatever I have. He says, I'm content in spite of whatever I have. That's a distant, different aspect, isn't it? Leave the word without. And then come and look at this word, um, content. Uh, turn back to 2 Chronicles, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things. That word gives us the word content. All sufficiency. And the makeup of the word in the original means independence. Not independence of Christ, but independence of circumstances. You see, he wasn't miserable because he was in prison. And he wasn't too elated because he was free. He didn't, his joy or his sorrow didn't depend upon circumstances. Let him tell you in verse 12, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Abased and abound. He knew both. Everywhere and in all things I've instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. So he knew the extremes. But he says, I'm independent of them all. For one thing remains unmoved. And that is Christ. And while that is true, I can still say I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Mostly, most of you at some time or another have seen or made your own list of the mysteries that are mentioned by the Apostle Paul. And there are a great number. But I don't think I've ever seen in the list, I've never put it there myself, I don't think I've ever seen anybody else put this verse in. Verse 12. But you may say to me, I don't see any mystery in verse 12. Well, the word instructed in this particular verse means to be initiated into a mystery. It contains the very root word of the word mystery. Here's a mystery. A secret. He says, I've been initiated into this mystery. That I can be fooled and not be toppled over by wealth. I can be hungry, and not, not be down in the abyss, because I'm lacking something. He said, no, I just go on, independent of, of it all. I'm not saying that me, friends, or you, uh, but it would be a fine thing for us if we could get this more clearly in our minds, wouldn't it? I mean, we're up today, and we're down tomorrow, simply because of the rise of the political or financial or domestic thermometer. Well, he says, that may go up or down, but Christ remains, and that's good enough for me. Well, here's the man. And yet, with all this independent spirit that we've suggested, how that man longed for and recognised the need for fellowship. Now, that's the other side of the story. Because if we stop one side, we make an austere, unapproachable sort of individual that you hardly like to speak to him. And yet he can be as gentle as he said his own words, I was with you like a nursing mother. Our version says a nurse. But he goes on to say nursing her own children. Well, that's a nursing mother. What a figure for this austere, unmovable, inflexible type of person. Now look at to Philippians once more. He counsels them in verse 5, Let your moderation be known unto all men. 
Supposing that stood alone, would you may prove that the Apostle Paul was one of those persons that were always cringing a little bit and um, not liking to say all he believed in case he upset you. But I want you to remember this. This word, moderation, in another form, the verbal form, occurs in that challenging passage in Galatians chapter 2, where he said, to whom we yielded subjection, not for an hour. What about that man? Is he saying truckle with regard to the truth? Never. He said, if it's a matter of yielding your own rights, if it's a matter of remembering the tender conscience of somebody else, let your yieldingness be manifest. But if it's a matter of standing for the good deposit of truth that God has entrusted to you, call them all somebody's and somewhat if needs be, but don't yield an inch. Here's a man for you. And so that man has been given us by Christ to give us some little idea of the type of person that he picked out and gave not only as an apostle, but as an example. But then you notice the alternation, as we've already suggested. He's not speaking about a gift, or he doesn't want you to think he's after a gift. He says, I desire fruit. I desire that you may have something down as a matter of interest on your account. And then he suddenly breaks again. He ceases to be the independent, austere one who won't even listen to receiving a gift from you. He says, oh, but I have all and abound. I am full. I am full. Who's this talking? Who's this man who's saying, I am full? Is he coming for a legacy? What's happened to him? He's in prison, friends. In prison. He's full. But how is that? Well, it's not the prison that gives him his fullness. He said, didn't I tell you I was independent of whether I was outside or inside? Christ is there with me. I am full. Having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. Now he's making all this wonderful to do out of a full overflowing heart for a little parcel that was sent. Because it was carried by hand. He had to get through enemies. So it couldn't have been a very big one. Couldn't have been a very big one. A little parcel that someone carried that was made up for him by these Philippians. And when he opened it, however simple it might have been, I believe that man's heart nearly broke for a moment in joy. Because he gives it this title. Writing to the Ephesians, he spoke about the love of Christ, which was a sacrifice. Acceptable. Well-pleasing to God. That's Christ's sacrifice. And here, he describes the parcel. An odour of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Have you ever sent a parcel to somebody? I wonder whether you could ever dare to believe that somebody out of an honest heart could say those words. But that's possible, you see. It's possible with a man like this anyhow. And then, of course, he can't help himself. Back he comes in verse 19, but... He says, you said to me and I'm rejoicing in it, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So he gives them a bit back after all. Now I, I love this man, don't you? Not because of any one particular apostolic quality, but he is so human and yet so devoted. Well now will you turn with me to a chapter which, if read, at first may seem terrible.
incredibly uninteresting. Romans, the 16th chapter. Now you'd expect, of course, in Romans to have a very wonderful doctrinal flourish as a wind-up. <coughs> and yet, what do we find? Romans 16. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Cancria, that ye receive her in the Lord as become his saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For <coughs> she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Here's a man, like Paul, registering that Phoebe, this woman, had not only helped others, but helped him. And he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. He is a man overflowing with gratitude for all sorts of service rendered in the name of Christ to him. And he doesn't hesitate to put it down in black and white. And wherever this is read, as our Saviour said, of the act of the woman when she anointed him, wherever this gospel is read, this shall be recorded of her. And wherever Romans is read, these acts are written and recognised. So let's go on. He says, salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia. He gives them all little titles, doesn't he? Unto Christ. Greet Mary. What did she do? Oh, she bestowed much labour on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. My kinsmen. Oh, that's good, because you almost felt this man stood absolutely alone with regard to kith and kin, as believers. But here they are. And my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Go on, Paul, put it all down unsparingly, isn't he? Isn't this a generous man? Greet Amplius, my beloved, in the Lord. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. Salute Herodium, my kinsman, is another one. Greet them that be of the house of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labour in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis. Notice that. He doesn't say, salute my beloved Persis. This was a woman. In all the exuberance of his overflowing gratitude, he still is wise. He says, the beloved Persis, which laboured much in the Lord. When he came to write his last epistle, and he was about to lay down his life for Christ's sake, he lets down the veil. And you'll find instead of saying the precise name Priscilla, he calls her by a little pet name, Prisca. Prisca. I think he did all the time, but he wouldn't say anything about it until the end came. So here's this man. He could be as severe as it is humanly possible to conceive as an apostle. And he could so enter in to the family uh, that he could be allowed to say a little pet name for one of these people who laid down their lives for his sake. And so it goes on. Salute Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. That's a lovely touch, isn't it? Rufus. His own mother, as far as we know, would have to disown him, however much he broke her heart, as many a Jewish mother has done since. And here's some other mother, and apparently taken a little bit of the place. 
And he could apparently go sometimes to the house of Rufus and find that which everyone must miss. He says, his mother and mine. And so the whole list goes on. Isn't that a delightful little list after all, friends? And there's more of it, more of it, others are put in. He even tells you the name who wrote the epistle to the Romans. Now some people will say, well, that's idiotic, for Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. But he says, no, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. And Tertius means number three. You've got another servant of the Lord called Secundus, number two. And you've got yet another one called Quartus, number four. These were slaves. And number three, a trained writer had taken down as far as we know by dictation the epistle to the Romans and God's allowed him to put his name in as well. Oh, these lovely little things. Wouldn't it be fine if we did that sometimes in all our rush and all our business to slip in sometimes these little elements that make the wheels go round so much better. I'd have to remember that when I'm up to the neck in work and take a dose of my own medicine, but it's left it rather late in life, perhaps, you see. So, but I'm, I'm not telling you, as the Apostle said, that you do what I do. I'm hoping that both of us will be very conscious that we've got a lot to wait make up as we follow this man. Well, now the next thing I want to do is to think about the way in which this man so independent yet longed for fellowship. The one who could say, not for an hour, yet. Over and over again, he uses the word fellow. Take this one in Philippians 4. We've just looked at it, but we'll look at it again. My yoke fellow. Today we don't use the word fellow as a woman, except it may mean the fellow of some society. But it is quite reasonable to use it in either way because it means one associated with another. And the word is feminine. My yoke fellow. Here was a woman who had so worked with the Apostle Paul that he could say she was his yoke fellow. And then in chapter 4, verse uh, 3, he again says, And other my fellow labourers, whose names are in the book of life. Fellow labourers. And then again in Philippians, still more, in uh, chapter 1, 27, there's another reference of the same type. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. Striving together. And then you will remember uh, that he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, with regard to himself and Apollos, these words, they do well to be pondered in connection with Christian service. Who then is Paul? 1 Corinthians 3, 5, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And then he says in verse 9, for we are labourers together with God, and that can be misread. On the surface it means that you or I are working with God as a companion, labourers together with God. But it's the other way round in the original. We are fellow labourers and both of us belong to God. Whether I'm a planter or whether I'm a water or whatever else I'm doing, I'm a fellow labourer with the other man and both of us belong to him. You know, I, I don't show perhaps these things very much, but it is a joy to come into this chapel sometimes 
and see some folks using their spare time and I have a little chip with them. I say, well, you're doing a bit of work at the end of the day at last. But secretly I'm thanking God. Secretly. To think that men should voluntarily. Oh, that's the lovely part of it. And sometimes I refrain from even thanking them. Perhaps I'm wrong. Because the last, there's the independence coming up again. The last thing I would wish anyone to do is to serve me. Oh, what a delight to know that they're giving all that time and thought because we, together, are serving the Lord Christ. And whether it's downstairs or upstairs, in the back or in the front, in the pulpit or somewhere, you don't know where, what's it matter? As long as it's rendered unto him and you're doing that which is well-pleasing and making the work go. I've never said so much ingratitude, I think, for anybody's service for about, what, 40 years. So whether I'll repeat myself, I'm not sure. But here's the just, I couldn't help it. Here it is, right in front of me. Now he was the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Preeminently. Yet notice how he says, fellow prisoners. I think we might get those together because that is a point that um, he, he recognised that others had shared. Uh, we know in the Acts of the Apostles that there was not only Paul with his back bleeding in the innermost prison at Philippi. There was Silas too. And in Colossians uh, chapter 4, 10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. So he's not taking it to himself, except that he must, as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles. And then in Romans 16, 7, I think we've already seen, he refers to a fellow prisoner. Uh, I believe we mentioned it, but it's good enough to mention again. Salute Andronicus and Julia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. So there was this sharing together. And then think of the one or two men that came into contact with the Apostle Paul. Take for instance Barnabas. We'll have to miss some out. But take for instance Barnabas. In chapter 9, 27 we read these words. But Barnabas took him and besought him and brought him, rather, to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. You say, what's all this mean? Well, if you go into the story, Saul the persecutor now comes back to Jerusalem, and he's supposed to be a believer. But you can quite understand the little gathering at Jerusalem would be very cheery about accepting that man on his own terms. And then Barnabas steps in. And bridges the gulf. And Barnabas does it again. Later on, he goes to um, Antioch. He sees the work that's being done there. And instead of taking it to himself, and doing the best he can, it says, he goes right up to Tarsus to seek Saul and bring him back again. So in a measure we owe to the intervention of Barnabas the fact that Saul didn't go away so disheartened as never come back again. He went and sought him. There's many other things, of course, that may be said. But here it is in chapter 11, verse 22. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then 
departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back, and Antioch became a centre for the preaching of the gospel very wonderfully. Well, there's many other things that we may say about Barnabas, and some not quite to his credit. But there that man stepped in. Now Barnabas was a Levite. And while the ministry of Paul was limited to the land of promise and its vicinity like uh, Antioch, he would have great weight. But if they were going into Europe, the because a man was a Jewish priest or Levite, wouldn't have any weight with those people there. They didn't bother about that. So you see what comes. A split comes between Paul and Barnabas. That may have been wrong, but it was overruled. And Silas comes into the story, chapter 15. Silas had come with Judas, two trusted men, with the decrees that had been agreed at Acts 15. And when it was all over, they were ready, they were, uh, Judas had finished and they departed. But, Silas carried, verse 34, Judas went back, but verse 34 says, notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Doesn't tell you why. It doesn't tell you whether he had a vision from heaven. It doesn't tell you whether he heard any words dropped. It was just a matter of intuition, or perhaps he couldn't tell you why he did it himself, but God knew, God knew. But immediately after that, the split came so bad, that Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, verse 39, and Paul chose Silas. Silas. He was ready. He stepped in. That's a fine character, friends. Just in the background a little bit. Not poking yourself forward and making yourself a nuisance, but nevertheless conscious that God may have a work for you to do and all you're going to do is to say, Here am I, Lord, I'm ready. So I suppose Silas went up to the Apostle Paul and I don't know what he did, but he just looked at him and Saul said, you're the man. Come with me. And you saw what happened. The very next chapter, they got the call to go into Europe. And there they were put in prison and then it was revealed that both Silas and Paul were Roman citizens. Here's a man who'd have more influence in Europe than Levi Barnabas. So God knew, there's Silas. His name is Silvanus. And you find him in the epistle to the Corinthians. So we have another of these that gathered round the Apostle Paul. In a letter from the United States, one friend who's become very keenly interested commented like this. He said, we are impressed with the quality of the men that you have gathered round you. Well, I haven't gathered them. They've been gathering round me. I don't say like bees round a honeypot, but the Lord has been putting it into their hearts to do so. And it is a wonderful thought, because you can gauge a man by his companions to a large extent. You can gauge that Apostle Paul by Barnabas and by Silas and by Timothy and by Luke, the beloved physician, and all these others, Aquila and Priscilla, all oh, they're all telling you that's the sort of man he is, otherwise I'd have nothing to do with him. I must be an extraordinary person, friends, when I think of the character of those who voluntarily have taken up work using their spare time and a good bit more. I hope they don't use their governor's time, but you never know what some of these people would do with elastic consciences. But there it is. That's what's happening. 
Isn't it wonderful that the Lord, I would never dream of going and asking a person to do certain things. I'd be always trying to put myself in his position and say, well, why should I impose all that upon him? He comes forward and says, oh, I not only do that, but I do a bit more. So it's better to leave it to the Lord, isn't it? And there it is. That's how it's going. And that friend put his finger on the spot. You can judge a person, or shall I put it the other way? You can judge the character of the work he's doing. That leaves the person out of it. By the men and the women that God has raised up to voluntarily give their bit. And so I'm glad that this is all written in the scriptures. It gives heart and helps us to go on. Then I mentioned Luke. Luke's gospel is purer Greek than the writing of any other in the New Testament. You see, Paul came from Tarsus and Cilicia was noted. It's given us a word in our language, a solecism. I don't know if I pronounced that exactly, but it's a sort of um, provincial way of saying a thing which immediately told everybody where you came from. But Luke's very refined Greek. And Luke, although he may have been a slave, was a very educated slave. He was a physician. And tradition says that he was a painter. Oh, that's good. See, painter. And here's this man standing with the apostle. And he's so modest that you never read his name in the Acts of the Apostles, although he wrote it. But the only time you know he's there is he suddenly changes from they did this and they did that and says, we did it. It's called the we sections. Take Acts 16, for instance. Acts 16, verse 6. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. Now, we've got to Troy, the ancient Troy. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over and help us. After he had said, seen the vision, immediately we endeavoured. Now, for a little period, we. Luke's with him. You can find his mention is that he's there. Then he goes again. Doesn't tell you he goes. There are four times in the Acts of the Apostles where he suddenly changes, we did this. That's all you know. And yet, he could correspond and write to a a nobleman, most excellent Theophilus, was a no turn of a no, to title of a nobleman. And that man went right through with the apostle until at last he had this tribute. Oh, it was a wonderful one. Only Luke is with me. What a testimony. What a testimony. Right the way through that career, writing a gospel that the apostle was glad to read many a time when they opposed him, Think how the apostle could turn to Luke's gospel the parable of the prodigal son and the other brother when he got the Jew against him. Or the parable of the uh, publican and the Pharisee. Why, it's the very basis of the epistle to the Romans. Justified rather than the other. And so we've got all these provisions that God made. The companions and fellow workers that he raised up to stand with this apostle. I missed out one. I didn't know whether I would have time, but we'll go back to the first one that ever had contact with the Apostle Paul, and that is given in chapter 9. 
where the apostle had been stricken down on the road to Damascus, was led, deprived of sight, and there he waited, without food, without drink, for three days. Then it says in verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen a vision, a man, in a vision, a man named Ananias, coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Now Ananias very rightly said, Oh dear, dear, what a work to give me to do. He says, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. And you're telling me to go to him. See, it was right to be diffident a bit, wasn't it, at first? He argued it out a bit. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This Apostle Paul could speak reverently but quite familiarly with King Agrippa, if you notice, although he was a prisoner and the King Agrippa was sitting on a throne. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, having been told all that, Ananias went his way, Ananias went his way, entered into the house, putting his hands on him, and there's one little bit I just wonder whether, in the mercy of God, he was permitted to do, he added a word that God never told him to say. He said, Brother Saul. I just wonder whether that was his one little contribution. He thought to himself, I've been talking about this man, I've been frightened of coming to this man, I've been sent to this man, he's a chosen vessel. And he looks at him, perhaps with a new eye, and it's very, very seldom that any one of us are justified in altering or modifying or adding to a message that God gives us. But if ever there was joy in the presence of the angels of God, ever one who did, I think it was when Ananias broke his reserve and not only said, Saul of Tarsus, but said, Brother Saul. I wonder how much we owe to the man who said, Brother Saul. For I'm sure it finished Saul of Tarsus, if he needed any finishing to hear those words from one that he would a few days before have handed over to the persecution or the death for believing in Christ. So we have all these wonderful illustrations. And I hope that by we haven't been emphasising the person and work of Christ as we should perhaps in some meetings, but we've done what he's told us to have a look at this pattern. And Paul describes himself as a man of light infirmity to ourselves. And here's this man, he can stand against the somebodies and the somewhats, and at the long last, he's permitted in an epistle which is inspired by God to say, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Well, that's an encouragement to us, isn't it? A man who could be a blasphemer, a persecutor, self-righteous, and all the things that went to make up Saul of Tarsus. And then, 
by that miracle of grace to be turned into Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. But as he would rather subscribe himself, Paul, the bond servant of Jesus Christ. For one stroke of mercy, he turned the persecutor into a preacher and into a pattern. And so may we take courage that the same grace, as he said, that was given to him could be given and would be given to us. Will you accept this then, therefore, as another contribution to the study of the Scriptures, focusing our attention this time upon outstanding characters? We've looked at Adam, the Old Testament, and one or two other worthies with him there, and now we've come to the New Testament to consider someone whose ministry means so much to us. And I trust that you will not go away from this meeting or get up from listening to this recording and feel that time has been wasted while we've been looking for a moment at a very earthen vessel, but rejoicing in the grace that stooped to pick him up and use him and the grace that filled him to the full, so overflowing that we ourselves here tonight have much to be thankful for that Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle and so faithfully stood to all the grace, both the testimony and the graciousness of his character, and sought, as he tells us, to adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things, not hesitating in mock humility to say, those things which you have heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Amen.